0: I like to have a certain kind of control over the sound, and I like to be able to contribute. But um, I, as a, as an individual part of this, you know, whole process, um, I'm not so interested in actually, um, you know, signaling to the audience that that I'm what I'm doing is supposed to be the focus of the attention. National Orchestral Institute. National Orchestral Institute. National Orchestral Institute.
1: Welcome to the National Orchestral Institute and Festival's podcast series. I'm your host, Robert Linton. Throughout this year's edition of NOI at the Clarisse, I will be sitting down with visiting artists, administrators, composers, and participants in the festival for brief question-and-answer sessions. Today I got the chance to sit down with composer Sam Adams, whose work Drift and Providence is being recorded at the festival by Naxos Records. Adams composed the work in 2012 as a co-commission for the New World Symphony and the San Francisco Symphony, both under the direction of Michael Tilson Thomas. The performance at NOI marks the first time that the work has been conducted by anyone other than MTT. Like all previous performances, though, Adams himself will be performing live sound design as the orchestra plays. In today's episode, I spoke with Sam about what makes the work unique. In the following conversation, you'll hear Adams talking about frequencies, artifacts, and digital compression. This all relates back to what he does to make the work happen. While the orchestra plays, he sits at his laptop and digitally transforms the sound provided by closely miked percussion instruments. Typically speaking, an orchestra plays music in the frequency range between 60 and 4,000 hertz, or vibrations per second. For reference, when you sit down at a concert and hear the orchestra tuning before it all begins, they are usually working with an A, played by an oboe, at 440 hertz. That means the sound of the orchestra is usually within about three octaves of that note in either direction. Adams, in his research, found that a lot of digital recording contains noise well above that range, between 5 and 10,000 hertz. He also noted that the sounds made by the ocean often fill up that part of the sonic spectrum as well. By transforming the sounds played by percussionists, Adams is able to make the orchestra expand its own sonic palette, and thus play beyond what is typically possible. In doing so, the ensemble mimics both the sounds of the natural world, heard near the ocean, and the sounds of our own intensely digital world. Here, then, is our conversation about drift and providence. For the sake of someone who hasn't had the chance to look at the score, for the Mm -hmm. sake of someone who hasn't had the chance to talk to you yet, what are you actually doing here in terms of the design that you're creating?
0: Sure. Basically, uh, when we listen to Spotify or we listen to um, an mp3 or we listen to highly compressed audio, um, the digital processes create all kinds of artifacts that aren't necessarily um, indicative of you know how the music may sound on stage when it's recorded particularly with uh, with a lot of popular music um, when you have you know snare drums or whatever um, and when you're listening to these kinds of sounds uh, on um, or through kind of a kind of, like a, um, a very compressed medium you, you get all these really interesting high frequency artifacts um, also, as you know, a, a lot of commercial music, a lot of recorded music these days, is highly compressed, um, so that when we're in our cars or when we're on the subway or whatever, we have access to all the frequencies. And this is another kind of quick and dirty explanation of what compression is, but it's basically kind of normalizing all the frequencies that exist in you know a piece of music and a piece of, in, in, a, in a recorded artifact, so that um, you know what might be. Quiet on stage, you know, in in, in, a, in a recorded environment, is actually much louder. Um, so the idea is that you can just kind of hear everything, and the the kind of resultant uh, sonic quality of compression is that you just have so, well, you just have the the, the high frequency spectrum, um, you know, between let's say five thousand hertz and all the way up to twenty thousand hertz, you know, to the threshold of our, our hearing, it's f- it's filled with noise. Um, even a lot of uh, contemporary classical recordings, um, maybe not so much, uh, you know, orchestra music, but a, a lot of electroacoustic music, a lot of music that kind of falls in this kind of gray area between popular and classical music. Um, this is just kind of a frequency spectrum that's all of a sudden new to to, to composers, um, well, I want to say new to composers, but it's, uh, it's, it's being filled more often than it has been in the past, shall we say. Um, and so f- f- when I was writing this piece, I, I was asking the question, you know, how, can I, how can I really kind of exploit that spectrum in a live performance? Um, and so what I'm doing with this piece is I have uh, 10 microphones four on four brake drums, which are these large metallic objects, um, four mics on sizzle cymbals, so the kind of cymbal that maybe Elvin Jones would play back in, you know, in the 1950s playing with Coltrane, the kind of pfft, this really beautiful sound that I that also has a really kind of personal connection to me growing up as a jazz bass player and standing next to a sizzle cymbal for about 15 years of my life. Um, <clears throat> And um, on um, amglöcken, which are the cowbells that Mahler used, in, particularly in the sixth symphony, um, I, I, I treat them a little bit different than than Mahler did. I, I have the percussionists scrape them together, so you get this kind of this kind of like scraping, jingly sound. It's really wonderful. I have a microphone on that, um, and all these kind of metallic, scrapey, noisy sounds create a really rich almost like, uh, I would say, acoustic white noise spectrum, and I amplify this, and from this spectrum, I pull certain frequencies that are germane to uh, harmonically what's happening in the piece, and I'm amplifying them, and I'm shooting them all around the room. Um, there are some other things that I'm doing as well. I'm taking some of the sound of the percussionists, and um, I'm down-sampling them, so I'm, I'm literally taking you know, rich acoustic sound and I'm turning it into one bit sound and delaying it and shooting it up into the cluster um, in the middle of the room. So you get at at certain moments in this piece, you get this kind of like, (sighs) which is maybe to some people an ugly noise, but to me, I think it's a really beautiful noise and I think maybe could potentially belong in a piece of orchestral music. So. So yeah, I'm taking I'm taking the, the kind of noisy sounds of the of the percussion on stage, and I'm transforming them in real time into into you know bit crushed sand land.
1: <laughs> Is it primarily per- the percussion that you're working with here, or mm-hmm. do you also then transform some of the sounds that come from the rest of the orchestra?
0: Just the percussion. I mean, I suppose during some of the louder moments, there are, you know there's bleed into the instruments, mm-hmm. but um, the microphones that we're using are very directional, and we have them pretty close mic'd up on the on the instrument. We have a lot of um, low cuts on the microphones, so um, so really we're only picking up the kind of higher spectrum mm-hmm. of the of the um, of the percussion. Um, this is so we have a little bit more kind of exacting control about which frequencies frequencies we pick up, but it also just means that there's a, you know a, a much less of a chance that we're going to feedback. You know anything below two hundred and sixty five hertz can Stay outside of this whole process.
1: What is your role in this piece, like other than composer, right? It's electronic, so people instantly go to that sort of Mason Bates image, and you're pretty vehement that it's not that. So, what is it that you're doing?
0: Sure, yeah, that's an interesting question. What what the role is? Um, I think with, uh, I mean, not to necessarily fall immediately into some kind of binary comparison. Um, But I mean, I think since you mentioned his name, Mason, I think really views himself as a performer when he does his pieces. Um, I don't really view myself as a performer with this piece um, for for very obvious reasons. You know, first and foremost, I'm not on stage, so I'm not seen. Um, uh, But also, I don't know, I guess there's a certain kind of lack of of presence as a performer that um, I like. You know, I, I like to have a certain kind of control over the sound, and I like to be able to contribute. But um, I, as a, as an individual part of this, you know, whole process, um, I'm not so interested in actually, um, you know, signaling to the audience that that I'm what I'm doing is supposed to be the focus of the attention. Um, and I think one of the main reasons is that it has to do with the nature of what I'm doing, which is is a, which is a. A kind of um, process which doesn't uh, usually show up in a kind of orchestral context, and I think that if I called myself a performer, even if I was, you know, even if I remained offstage, I think that that kind of signals to the audience that they should be paying more attention to what I'm doing than um, than maybe I'm, you know, I'm, in, I'm intending. Um, because after all, and I mentioned this to you before, uh, the piece really is an orchestra piece first and foremost. And I, I, you know, I would never want to be in a kind of position where my ones and zeros coming out of my computer are somehow um, overshadowing, you know, the the hours upon hours of, you know, musical work and, um, you know, just kind of like the the like ball of fire of, uh, of uh, you know, musical intelligence that's on stage, I wouldn't want to necessarily somehow kind of like shroud that. Um, so I think that's why I don't call myself a performer in this context, I call myself a sound designer. Um, I think that's a little bit less, it's a little more of a kind of like rounded term, and it, I think it allows the audience to pay first and foremost attention to the, the musicians on stage, and if they so choose, they can also listen to, to what I'm doing.
1: So would you say that your role is, you know, it's somewhere on a spectrum, obviously, is it closer to that of the traditional role of the guy behind the boards in a concert
0: hall than it is people on stage? Uh, Yes and no. I mean, this this is a really interesting question. Um, uh, uh, The traditional role of a sound guy, uh, you know, behind a board is to make the ensemble sound as best as possible, Mm -hmm. right? to you know, to to his or her idea of what the overall sonic quality should be. Um, so I guess in a certain respect, that that would be the case with what I'm doing, except that there really is an element um, to what I'm doing, which is totally individual and can only be done by me. Um, I mean, I, I suppose that I could you know, teach some, you know, teach a, another audio engineer how to how to perform this piece, but. Um, it is really creative, you know, that with every performance I'm kind of, you know, pushing certain things here or there. You know, I'm transforming the sizzle symbol a little bit more in one performance and I'm kind of scaling it back in another. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I I, I guess it, it, like I kind of fall in this weird gray area between, you know, a traditional kind of sound designer who's pushing faders back and forth and EQing the room and, and an, an actual performer who's on stage pressing buttons. I'm in this kind of nebulous zone that I've created for myself.
1: I had the fortune of getting to talk to you before anyone got here, right? I had an idea of what you were doing on this piece. And talking to the musicians, I didn't get the sense that they had that same idea. I got the sense that they were expecting what we tend to think of when we think of electronic music combined with acoustic music. Um, And their eyes, which is inserting sounds, uh, non-native sounds, non-native to the performance, at least, sounds. Uh, And their eyes, when I would explain this to them, that, no, what he's doing is he's taking your sound and transforming that, they just sort of lit up. They really responded very well to that. Have you found that response in the two orchestras that you've worked with elsewhere? Uh,
0: Yeah. I I mean, I think the response generally that I get from from musicians doing this piece um, is that they... They don't always know what's going on, which is okay. Um, and I uh, mean, you know, the the other thing is that, of course, um, for performance to performance, what I do is very different, and so it's. Yeah, I just I think that, I, I from them I, I occasionally get this kind of like oh wow like I, I heard this kind of sign sign tone thing come in and it like, you know was perfectly orchestrated with the vibraphone playing an f sharp and the harmonic that i was doing and it was really cool and then you know when we did it the night before like i didn't hear that and so i mean i think there's a little bit of um there's a little bit of uh how shall i say um, <clears throat> well the the other thing that i should say about this piece is that there are a lot of notes um, <laughs> and so the, the the musicians are usually pretty darn busy and focused you know, just making their own sound, um, but um, yeah, no, they've been they've been pretty open to the whole idea. I, I think the, the the one thing that I would say is that musicians generally feel uh, with this piece that they that they're not being covered and that they're not, you know, that, that the sound of you know their instrument that they've you know spent so much time cultivating is is. You know, is not jeopardized by what I'm doing, and I think that they appreciate that, um, because there's certainly you know a possibility of doing a kind of a electroacoustic piece of music where, you know, the electronics take over. And I've I've heard a lot of those pieces, and it's it's no fun for anyone. You know, no one wins. Yeah. How many rehearsals have you gotten with the orchestra at this point? Um, two. Two. So yeah, there was a re- rehearsal this morning, and then the day before there was a rehearsal in the afternoon. And then on Tuesday, right after I arrived, I spent three hours in the space working on the audio system and miking all the instruments and kind of tuning the house. Nice. So I've had three opportunities to be in the space and kind of get used to it.
1: And from our previous conversation, that's more than you're used to on this piece.
0: Yeah, uh, it's been a total luxury being here, having that, <laughs> that amount of time. Um, we did this piece... Uh, in the fall of 2013, mm-hmm. uh, the San Francisco Symphony took it on tour and so I usually had like oh, 30 minutes or so you know, at each stop along the way to plug in and you know, make it happen. So it's actually really fantastic to be able to kind of set up my stuff and, and you know, gradually kind of tune what I'm doing over the course of three or four days. Um, it's, it's a real luxury. This performance is obviously being recorded.
1: How does that change your approach to it, and how does it change your feeling about this piece? To know that you know in your mind, every time this piece is heard, it's your vision of that piece, and now it's going to be your vision on June eleventh, two thousand sixteen.
0: Yeah, I mean it's like any other recording, you know. I'm, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a bass player, and I, you know, I used to do recordings all the time when I was living in New York and California, and it's, it's the same exact thing. You know, it's you bring the the best possible rendition of the music that you're making to the session, and you know what I what I'm doing, uh, you know, on Saturday night, I view is very much exactly you know what I was doing playing bass, you know, five years ago doing recording sessions.
1: A lot of this music is coming out of your laptop, right, mm-hmm. and it's electronic signal. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know, is the recording going to be taking the sound in the hall, or will they be drawing directly from your electronic signal and adding that in?
0: That's a great question. Um, I've been talking to Phil, the producer, and the game plan that we've decided is that we're going to do a little bit of both. Um, so I mean, of, of course, the, the most important thing is that he gets uh, you know, a really good sonic profile of, of really how the piece sounds in the hall before I send anything to him. but. Um, I'm also sending. I'm making a recording of what I'm doing, of all the dry signals, you know, before they actually get to the um, the speakers. Um, so I, he'll have that handy if he wants to, you know, support his final recording with with just a little bit more of that. But um, I have a feeling that he's probably not going to want to use any dry signal from my computer. I, I imagine he's just going to take what's in the hall, just because you know that's that's the natural acoustic that it you know. Is meant to that's what the on. audience heard. Yeah, it's so what the audience in. heard. Yeah.
1: yeah, and that's you know that's what our CDs try to do. Is... Yeah, and
0: I, I love the idea that a, a recording is really you know a snapshot of, of, of a performance that happened and isn't just this kind of like cobbled together, you know, artifact with so many different you know moving parts. So uh, you know I, I really hope that you know most of what comes out on Naxos is <laughs> you know is you know the performance from Saturday night. So.
1: One of the things a lot of people focus on is to, within the world of classical music, this is a brand spanking new work, right? It's 2012, you know, relatively speaking, this is basically a newborn. Mm-hmm. That said, you're 30 years old, this was four years ago that you premiered this. That's a significant chunk of your compositional lifetime. So to you, this probably seems like something from ages ago. Do you get much of that sense? Have you changed a lot, do you think, in your compositional style since this piece? Does it feel That's like revisiting, you know, something from your past, or does it still feel fresh to you?
0: Both, really. I mean, to be honest, it, I, it, it feels like, you know, when I hear the piece being done, you know, that that in many ways I've kind of moved on, um, but also it's, you know, it's kind of a confirming experience, you know, that there are certain things that I was doing in 2011 when I was writing the piece that I'm still doing. Um, but the other thing is that this week is, I mean, it's just such a different experience. You know, I'm working with Jim Ross, who I love, and the NOI students who are so great, and there's just a totally different energy, and the piece is different because of those reasons. Um, So yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like I feel like it. You know, this. Like, I, if I were to write an electroacoustic orchestra piece that was 20 minutes, it would be so different. Um, you know, I've have definitely moved on. But but yeah, to answer your question, it um, it feels it feels good actually. It's like it's nice to be able to kind of. I mean, I'll put it this way. There's a lot that I have made in you know the last six seven years that i would not want pulled out of the drawers um you know some juvenilia that should remain hidden locked up forever um but no it feels good this is like you know i feel like it's a piece that i you know am down to share with the world so it's really cool that it's getting released on access
1: as a musicologist it's this centuries-long look at things, and every single survey course, you know, by the time you hit 1970, you've got one week left in the semester, so here's everything in one day. And so historically, that's how I sort of think, is that basically it's all the same, and then you realize that, oh, God, no, it isn't.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting, and and, I mean, you're right, in the grand scheme of things, this piece is brand spanking new, but, um, you know, I'm opening up my Max patch, and I'm kind of fiddling away and getting used to, you know, kind of like um, re-acquainting myself, shall I say, with with, with, what I created in 2011. And the technology has completely changed. Like what I'm doing is kind of like obsolete, you know, and I I actually had to rewire my patch for, you know, the latest version of the software that I'm using. And um, so actually, uh, because this is an electroacoustic work and because it requires a certain kind of technological involvement, it feels <laughs> it feels more obsolete than if it were just you know an acoustic work.
1: A decade from now, do you think you'll even be able to perform a lot of this work?
0: Uh, I mean, the question it's really it's really a question of performance practice, mm-hmm. um, and I, yeah, I mean, I think I, I think this this piece will be able to get performed because the the pr- the processes are fairly standard. You know, mm-hmm. filtering noise. Um, you know, granular synthesis on you know certain kinds of um, live amplified textures that you're pulling from an ensemble, um, inclusion of certain kinds of samples. This is actually like really basic stuff, um, but the way that I've notated it and the way that I've incorporated my program into the whole process of putting this piece together is. Is very specific to 2012. You know, um, it's and it's already an obsolete thing. Um, so I think that you know, if I were to publish this work, I mean, it's self-published. But if I were to you know work at some point with like a larger publishing company and figure out how to best document and present the materials of the work, yeah, I mean, I th- I th- I think that I would include some kind of program. But I think I would also just include a more open-ended. Um, set of directions for what to do pro- process-wise with the electronics um, otherwise i run into this problem you know which is that in 2022 uh you know computers might not be able to handle or not handle they might not be able to um i guess like exhume <laughs> max 6.2 from the dead and <laughs> and, and um, <clears throat> you know and actually recreate. Um, you know what I was doing specific to, to you know, to, to the performances in twenty thirteen, and then again in twenty sixteen. So it's this really interesting question. Yeah, I mean, but although maybe you know, in twenty thirty, there will be a, a kind of performance practice where you know uh, engineers who are running electroacoustic orchestral shows are you know purists and, you know, they will insist that they have a MacBook Pro 2015 and, you know, that they're <laughs> going to you know, and maybe there will be the kind of other camp which is like, no, we should use the most cutting edge technology. I mean, I imagine that's what's going to happen, you mm-hmm. know, as, as electroacoustic music advances and, you know, like struggles to figure out how to document itself and how to, how to have uh, some kind of life that isn't so insanely, I don't know, chaotic.
1: Thanks to Sam for taking the time out of his busy schedule here at NOI. In our next episode, I'll continue my conversation with Sam and go beyond the work that we got the chance to experience here as part of the festival.
0: Sometimes it's easy to feel like, yeah, we're, what we're doing is incredibly relevant and um, maybe there is some kind of rena- renaissance going on. Um, and then I step into, you know, an American orchestra into the lobby and I look at a, you know, program book and I look at the, what's happening in the season and I feel, no, what we're doing is not relevant at all. Um, and it's still very much, um, you know, a hidden kind of activity and has very, very, very little relevance um, in the kind of larger cultural milieu that we live in in America.
1: In case you missed it, our first episode was an interview with Jim Underkoffler, former president and director of the Philadelphia Orchestra. You can find that one, as well as this and all future episodes, on iTunes, Google Play Music, or SoundCloud. On the first two, just search National Orchestral Institute and subscribe. Or you can follow our SoundCloud page by visiting soundcloud.com slash National Orchestral Institute. And if you'd like to see the NOI Orchestra in person, you can do so by visiting the Clarice in College Park, Maryland. The Clarice is helping to build the future of the arts by educating, training, and presenting the next generation of creative innovators. With performances year-round, there's always something to experience at the Clarice. Check out our schedule by visiting theclarice.umd.edu or by finding us on Facebook under The Clarice. Thanks for listening and tune in next time.